0: The smoke has cleared, and both Iran and the United States have signaled plans to de-escalate tensions after we killed their top general and they lobbed some missiles into the dirt. We take a look at the key lessons from the best war ever. Then Cardi B fears for her safety in Trump's America, so she's planning on moving to Nigeria. Joy Behar endorses white supremacist Richard Spencer on The View, and Prince Harry quits his own family, proving once again That you should never marry a feminist. Finally, The Mailbag, all that and more. I'm Michael Knowles, and this is The Michael Knowles Show. All right. We have got a lot to get to today, so we're going to fly right through it. Uh, I'm sure everyone has heard or seen snippets of, at least, President Trump's statement yesterday. He gave a statement on the tensions with Iran Overall, it was a superb statement. We don't need to watch the whole thing in your own time, listen to it. It was really, really good. I mean, it was just, I, I dare say it was a flawless (laughs) statement. He tripped over a few words, so it wasn't technically flawless, but in, in terms of the strategy that was being conveyed, it was just perfect. Trump pointed out that Soleimani was a dirtbag who had to die. He pointed out that no Americans were injured in the retaliation from Iran. He said that America was going to reinstitute sanctions. Ilhan Omar and some other radicals in the Democratic Party were very upset by this, but that's par for the course. Uh, by saying he was going to reinstitute the sanctions, this was a de escalation. Obviously, just as Iran said that in order to save face, they had to respond to the killing of Soleimani, so too the United States has to respond to the ballistic missiles that were shot at our base, even though nobody was killed, thank God still the, that response of the sanctions is a deescalation is very smart. And then Trump reminded the mullahs and he reminded all the other dirtbags around the world that the United States has a bigger button than they do and that our missiles work. I mean, this is basically the Trump doctrine is the bigger button doctrine. You could call it the Reagan doctrine in many ways, which is peace through strength and he also got in a good knock on Barack Obama and the previous administration here. Just a, a short clip from the speech where President Trump explains how we got into this mess and how he's cleaning up what Obama started.
1: Iran's hostilities substantially increased after the foolish Iran nuclear deal was signed in 2013. And they were given $150 billion, not to mention $1.8 billion in cash. Instead of saying thank you to the United States, they chanted death to America. In fact, they chanted death to America the day the agreement was signed. Then Iran went on a terror spree, funded by the money from the deal, and created hell in Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, Afghanistan, and Iraq. The missiles fired last night at us and our allies were paid for with the funds made available by the last administration.
0: Right. The, the missiles were funded with the money sent over by Barack Obama to Iran. That is a very politically evocative way to look at the situation. It also happens to be correct. People are saying that this is gratuitous, that he didn't need to take the shot at Obama here. Yes, he did. It was one of the most important aspects of the whole statement. Because we have to ask ourselves, how did we get here? How did we get to the precipice of war with Iran? The left is trying to blame Trump. It isn't Trump's fault. The way we got to the precipice of war with Iran is not because we showed some strength and killed their general. Killing their general was a response to acts of war that Iran was already foisting upon us, including the attack on the Baghdad embassy, including the killing of an American contractor just a couple weeks ago, including. Hundreds of, of American deaths at the hands of Suleimani in the region. How did we get here? The answer is the feckless policies in part brought about by Barack Obama. And for those saying that Trump shouldn't blame Obama for everything, Obama blamed Bush for every little thing that happened during his presidency, his completely failed economic recovery, the political obstruction, the wars in the Middle East, many of which he started, Obama started. He would just blame Bush for everything. No president in my lifetime has liked blaming the past administration as much as Obama, possibly until Trump because he learned a a page out of Barack Obama's playbook. Trump here is rightly pointing out that he is solving the problems brought on by Barack Obama. And Obama and his administration, by the way, didn't just leave it at blaming Bush and then failing throughout their eight years. They have been undermining Trump's campaign and then presidency from the very beginning. They spied on him to begin with. They tried to cheat the 2016 election. And then ever since he got into power, they have, they've actually been calling foreign powers. They've been calling Iran to try to undermine Trump's Iran strategy. So Trump comes into office and he says, we're going to rip up that crappy Iran deal and we're going to negotiate our own deal. And John Kerry, Obama's secretary of state, gets on the phone with Javad Zarif, who's the foreign minister of Iran. And he gets on the phone, and he says, Javad, I'm so sorry, honey, honey, monkey, please lovey dovey. He, he always sounds like Thurston Howell III at whenever I see him speak and he, he kind of looks like, I don't know, Frankenstein or something or Herman Munster. And He's just there, this frozen waspy politician trying to cling to whatever power is still left and he says, Javad, please, we'll work it out. Don't, don't let this deal fall apart because this is the Obama legacy in Iran is that Iran deal. And look at what the legacy has led to. American deaths, an attack on our embassy, fecklessness, and a complete absence of deterrence. President Trump reinstituted that. This has worked out perfectly. I was just recounting yesterday the victories of the, of this administration, where this is the cherry on top of the Sunday. We'll get to that in a second. Then we'll get to the very important news, of course, which is Cardi B. But first, let's face it. Most New Year's resolutions are hard to keep. Get more exercise, save more money. There is a resolution, however, that is easy to keep. Stop wasting time going to the post office. Use stamps.com instead. I love stamps.com. I mean, they've been with us almost since the very beginning. With stamps.com, you can do everything that you do at the post office right from your computer. And I will tell you, as, as a millennial I, I, I go to the post office like twice a year. Maybe I can't bring myself to do it because in every other aspect of our lives, we can use our computers. We can use our phones to get these kind of basic things done. And yet some people just haven't adapted quickly. That's where stamps.com comes in because stamps.com is bringing the post office to your house. Big discounts on postage, by the way. So stamps.com, you get every service of the U.S. Postal Service at your computer, whether you're a small office sending invoices, whether you're an online seller shipping out products, maybe you're a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day. Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. We here at The Daily Wire love it. Simply use your computer, print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere. You can do that today. No risk whatsoever with my promo code Canada Knowles, K-N-O-W-L-E-S, you get a special offer that includes a four week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Go to stamps.com. Then click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in NOLS, K-N-O-W-L-E-S. Stamps.com, promo code Knowles K-N-O-W-L-E-S. Go do it right now. You will thank me later. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. After this moment, this, this precipice, on the brink of war, people saying it was World War III, a bunch of ignorant millennials and Zoomers saying that they're going to reinstitute the draft or something. We haven't had the draft in this country in decades. Trump strikes back and causes Iran to blink, causes Iran to back down, and then we de-escalate the tensions. Right now, Javad Zarif, John Kerry's buddy, uh, says that there is not going to be a further response, and Trump is pulling back now and it looks like we've avoided the war. Or maybe we've already had the war and it was the best war ever because no Americans died in that war. I was going through the math. I thought, booming economy, record low unemployment, record high consumer confidence, manufacturing confidence. The leader of ISIS, dead. The top military general in Iran, dead. Deterrence, reinstituted. Record deregulation. 187 judges, two of whom are on the Supreme Court. Solid judges who will have a legacy far longer than the Trump administration. The list goes on and on and on. You have to admit it. We all have to admit it to ourselves. Even those who were skeptical of Trump, even those people on the left maybe who hate Trump's character. You have to admit the man is an excellent president. He's doing a great job. The handling of this Iran issue from the Baghdad embassy attack before that, the, the response was, it was flawless. It couldn't possibly have gone any better. No American casualties. As we stand up to Iran, as we take out one of the most important men in their country and one of the most important men to global terrorism, and no American casualties is the response to that because we've now reestablished the credible threat of violence and we've, we've maintained President Trump's unpredictability, one of the most important advantages you can have in foreign affairs. He's doing a great job. And if you're one of these people on the left, right or center who are still laboring under this misapprehension that Trump is some bumbling idiot who just accidentally seems to get all these things right. He's just that bumbling fool billionaire who married a supermodel, who succeeded in network television and real estate and casinos and politics, got the biggest job in the world on his first try. If you still think that, you've probably got the wrong idea. You're probably looking at this a little wrong. Presidents have always hadn't the advantage the successful presidents have always had the advantage of being underestimated it was true of it's certainly true of trump it was true of george w bush it was true of bill clinton right george bush he was a total idiot bill clinton he's just a nice guy from arkansas it was true of ronald reagan he's just a dumb actor he's just the guy who did bedtime for bonzo they've always been underestimated and then and then they succeed you know reagan takes down the soviet union takes down the berlin wall All the way, fast forward to President Trump, who wins this incredibly complex conflict with Iran, with zero American casualties. That's a wonderful thing. The guy deserves credit for it. Trump also called this in the 80s. A lot of people don't remember it, but in the 1980s, when he was beginning to dip his toe into politics, set the stage for his political career, he took out massive ads in newspapers, the New York Times, a bunch of other newspapers, actually criticizing the Reagan administration. Something tells me that no matter who was president at the time, if Trump wanted to establish the basis for his political career, he would have attacked them all in the same way. But he criticized Reagan for not being strong enough on foreign affairs. And what he said was, there is nothing about our foreign defense policy that can't be fixed with a little backbone. Now, Ronald Reagan did take down the Soviet Union, so I think he had some backbone. (laughs) But The the general principle is correct because when you look at President Trump's foreign policy, he's not fundamentally reordering the world order, right? He's not fundamentally reordering American foreign affairs. He isn't actually dismantling NATO or allying with people that we don't ally with and betraying our allies and cozying up to our enemies. He's not actually doing that. I know the mainstream media says so, but look around, It, it all basically looks the same. The difference is the backbone. The difference is when you draw a red line, you actually back it up. The difference is deterrence. And it's so simple. I was talking to a friend of mine, very prominent in foreign policy, who said all these academics, all these intellectuals, they make foreign policy so much more complicated than it should be. Actually, the key to foreign policy is that it's very simple. Be good to our allies and crush our enemies. It's simple enough, don't, you know, you don't need to make it more complicated. I think that's Trump's view of it and it happens to be correct. A Medal of Honor recipient at the White House earlier this week summed up the approach. It was a beautiful, beautiful, simple explanation of our foreign policy. We'll get to that in a second. Then, of course, I promise you we're going to get to the most important news. I know you're on the edge of your seat because Cardi B is going to move to Nigeria. And the royal family is is breaking up. Prince Harry is doing this and it's all the fault of one American actress. But first, I got to thank our friends over at Quip. Quip, the makers of the Quip electric toothbrush, want you to know that there is a single discovery that matters most for your dental care. And it is simply this. If you have good habits, you're good. Good habits. That's what it's about. It's not that you need this one simple trick that you do once and then you're going to have great teeth. No, you need good habits. This is true. In every realm of life, Aristotle describes virtues as habits. You got to practice them, okay? And when it comes to your teeth, that means brushing for two minutes twice a day and flossing regularly. Doesn't matter what brand you use, okay? You just got to do it. Quip makes that so simple, starting with an electric toothbrush, refillable floss, and anti-cavity toothpaste. Quip's electric brush has sensitive sonic vibrations with a built-in timer and 30 second pulses to guide a full and even clean. The Quip Floss Dispenser comes with pre-marked string to help you use just enough. It is good habits, that is what you are getting. Quip delivers a fresh brush head, floss, and toothpaste refills to your door every three months with free shipping so your routine is always right. If you're like me, you you know, you know wait until there's like one micro millimeter of toothpaste left in the tube and you're squeezing it out and it's all this kind of origami that you're doing with it don't worry about that. Okay. You don't need to try to live like that. You don't need to make it all the way to the store. Let Quip make this easy for you. Starts at 25 bucks. If you go to getquip.com slash Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L right now, you will get your first refill free. Merry Christmas. That is your first refill free at getquip.com slash Michael, getqui com slash Michael. Quip, the good habits company. So Staff Sergeant David Balavia was uh, receiving the Medal of Honor earlier this week. And obviously there were tensions building with Iran. He explained the Trump doctrine. He explained the kind of basic fundamentals of American foreign policy very well. Be good to our friends, be bad to our enemies. We don't want war, but if, if you ask for war, we'll crush you. Our military should not be mistaken for a cable news gabfest show. We don't care what you look like. We don't care who you voted for, who you worship, what you worship, who you love. It doesn't matter if your dad left you millions when he died or if he knew who your father was. We have been honed into a machine of lethal moving parts that you would be wise to avoid if you know what's good for you. We will not be intimidated. We will not back down. We've seen war. We don't want war. But if you want war with the United States of America, there's one thing I can promise you. So help me God. Someone else will raise your sons and daughters. Simple enough. Jim Mattis has a famous quote. He was speaking to some officers in Iraq. Some of the officers who could be our allies or could be our enemies. And he said to them, look, I am pleading with you. I am begging from the bottom of my heart. Do not betray us. Because I want to work together. I want to be friends with you. But if you betray us, I will kill every last one of you. That is sort of the American foreign policy fundamental. That's the Trump doctrine. Is we do not want war. We don't want it. Democracies, republics, we tend to hate war. Okay, and we're fickle and there are elections every few years. And we just don't want war. However, if you provoke us, if you demand war, if you foist war on us, We will kill every last one of you. We will make sure that other people raise your children. Okay. That was what Trump told the mullahs in Iran and they listened and their response to us killing one of the most important guys in their country was to lob a bunch of missiles into the dirt. Well done. Then we're going to impose sanctions. We de-escalate because America has strength. Now, not everybody is thrilled. Trump, I'm sorry to say, has lost a key voting demographic. He has lost the Cardi B vote. Who is Cardi B? I don't really know. I guess she's a, a figure in music or something. She's a really funny character. I really like her as a cultural figure. She uh, She's now become kind of a Bernie bro. But previously, she had this video go out where she realized how much money the federal government was taking out of her paychecks. And she was just irate. It was, it was this beautiful moment because it was like looking almost at a child at like a 16 year old kid gets their first paycheck and says, wait, where'd all my money go? And she, she famously said, what y'all doing with my mother effing money? I want receipts. I want receipts. What y'all doing with my mother effing money? So ironically then, because she probably hasn't thought too deeply about politics, she's now become a Bernie bro. Bernie who wants to take all of her money every last penny. But With regard to Iran, Cardi B just tweets out, nah, these memes are effin', and then a few emojis, so like all the memes about World War III, like they're funny and they're sad and they're terrifying. But SHIT ain't no joke, especially being from New York. It's sad this man is putting Americans' lives in danger. Dumbest move Trump did till date, I'm filing for my Nigerian citizenship. So first of all, Trump just staved off war. More Americans were killed by Iran in the weeks before we killed Suleimani than in the whole retaliation after we killed Suleimani. So this idea that American weakness is how you get peace has been disproven. All right. We just, it was disproven two days ago. However, I want to get to the Nigerian citizenship part because I don't know that Cardi B has ever Googled Nigeria. Nigeria has three times the murder rate of the United States. more crime overall. 27% of women in Nigeria suffer female genital mutilation. Uh, One in four girls and one in 10 boys will experience sexual violence before the age of 18. And 31.4% of girls will report that their first sexual encounter was rape. Nigeria is not a safe place. It's not a particularly pleasant place. The United States of America, much safer, much more pleasant. This is what happens. This is the effect of Trump derangement syndrome. Okay. This is TDS in action is people, especially on the left, get so wrapped up in the eccentricities of Trump, in the quirks of his personality, that they begin to think patently absurd things like we will be safer in Nigeria than we are in the United States. Look no further for this. You wanna see the, the perfect, the prime example of Trump derangement syndrome? Look at the ladies on The View, on The View yesterday. Joy Behar, who's kind of the central leftist woman on The View, she literally sits in the center of the table and she's the main leftist there. She was so happy because Richard Spencer, the white supremacist, is furious at Trump that Trump is standing up to Iran. She didn't even think through the implications of her excitement, which is that Joy Behar is now on the same side as Richard Spencer. And they don't just accidentally fall on the same side or coincidentally. They're on the same side of the same policy question for the same policy reasons. Maybe that would cause a rational person to rethink their own views on the policy. Not Joy Behar. She's just so happy that anybody, including a white supremacist, opposes Trump. Yeah. It was one small thing. You were saying, "What's th- some good news?" Mm-hmm. This is a tiny thing that I noticed. Uh, you remember Richard Spencer? He's basically mm-hmm. the organizer of Unite the Right, Monitech. the white nationalist group that was marching in Charlottesville. It was all in for Trump. Not anymore. Here's his really? quote. He tweeted last night: "I deeply regret voting for and promoting Donald Trump in 2016." Oh my gosh! Wow! I okay. mean. That's big, that's interesting. Do you that's, know why? Because, well, like I, I said Israel, yesterday, right? Trump ran on not invading and not being a war. That's
1: monger. what I'm talking
0: I love it. And I love the applause. Because we have some good news. We want another person over to our cause. We are on the same side as Richard Spencer. Woo! Yeah, we're on the same side as that white supremacist guy. Woohoo. If she had stopped to think about this for two seconds, she would say, wait a second. If Richard Spencer opposes Trump and I oppose Trump and if Richard Spencer opposes showing strength to Iran and I oppose showing strength to Iran, that means that I'm on the same side as Richard Spencer. That's, that's probably not a good look. Maybe I should be on the same side as Donald Trump, uh oh, whoops, that's not great. It wasn't just Joy Behar. I would say the key here is. Obviously, the Trump derangement syndrome. The key is taking a moment to think about the implications of your policy views. Okay, I'm not saying that you now Joy Behar needs to support Trump. I'm not saying, I'm saying she needs to stop, take a beat, hold on a second, and realize the implications of what she's saying. Ilhan Omar did exactly the same thing yesterday. Ilhan Omar, member of the squad, she came out and said, Even Trump's sanctions on Iran are unacceptable. We can't sanction Iran because, quote, sanctions are economic warfare. Sanctions cause death and starvation and disease. Sanctions are terrible, right? Okay, what she failed to remember is that a year ago, Ilhan Omar explicitly called for sanctions of Israel. So by admitting that sanctions are economic warfare and they cause death and destruction and mayhem, what she's saying is we can never engage in war with Iran, even if Iran is killing our servicemen to the tune of over 600, even if Iran kills a contractor, an American contractor just a couple weeks ago, even if Iran attacks our embassy, even if Iran lobs ballistic missiles at US bases, we can never engage in that kind of warfare with Iran. Also, let's declare war on Israel. Because why? Why? What, what did Israel do to us? I, I've, I have a few suspicions of why Ilhan Omar wants to declare war on Israel. But she, I'm, I'm not even saying she needs to all of a sudden like Israel and hate Iran. I'm just saying if she weren't so warped and so wrapped up by this Trump derangement syndrome, just like Joy Behar, just like most of the American left, she would probably take a moment to think through the implications of what she's saying and maybe she wouldn't say it. Ideology makes people crazy. You know what else makes people crazy? A specific ideology called feminism, and Prince Harry has just learned that lesson, as has the entire United Kingdom. Pretty breaking news. If we weren't just recovering from the best war ever, if we weren't just cooling off from the brink of tensions with Iran, this would have been the biggest news story of the day. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex, so Prince Harry and his wife, the American actress Meghan Markle, issued a statement yesterday that they are quitting the royal family. I I know it seems bizarre to quit your own family, but when you're a royal, the family is the job and they are quitting both their family and the job of being a royal. The reason they're doing this is to become financially independent, which if you're reading between the lines means Meghan Markle wants to be in some movies again. You know, most girls grow up, they say, oh gosh, I just want to be a princess. Oh, I want a Prince Charming to come up and marry me and then I'll be a princess, right? And that's obviously Meghan Markle said that she married a prince. And then she said, "Mm, actually, I want to be an actress. Nah, it's better to be an actress. Let me tell you something. I've I've worked in Hollywood or worked in in that particular industry. It would be better to be a royal. I think she's going to come to regret this decision. They wrote, quote, after many months of reflection and internal discussions, we've chosen to make a transition this year in starting to carve out a progressive new role within this institution. We intend to step back as senior members of the royal family and work to become financially independent while continuing to fully support Her Majesty the Queen. It is with your encouragement, particularly over the last few years, that we feel prepared to make this adjustment. You might as well call Harry uh, Prince Edward IX. He's just like his great uncle, uh, King Edward VIII, who abdicated the throne, caused mayhem in Great Britain because he fell in love with a divorced American, just like Meghan Markle. This is very bad. I mean, first of all, why, why do we care? There's a certain American view, which is that I haven't cared about the royals since 76, bang, bang, you know, but I don't think that's fair. The, the royal family in Great Britain is currently a pillar of Western civilization. I mean, it's one of the few stabilizing forces that we still have in this torrent of change throughout the West. And it shows you something that's so awful about our modern individualistic liberal culture, which is we have no sense of duty. You know, we look at politics primarily through this liberal lens, which is through the the lens of rights and entitlement. Me, me, me. I get to do whatever I want. I shouldn't have to have any duty. I I should be able to choose whatever I want to choose. And that is not in any way a conservative vision of politics. The conservative vision looks at politics primarily through duty, through bonds of loyalty, through bonds of friendship and kinship. Prince Harry, he didn't choose his life. He was born a royal. That comes with many privileges. All the money, all the luxury, all the palaces, all the castles, all of the fame, all of the fortune, right? It also comes with responsibility because your whole life is dedicated to the public service. You are the beating heart of the nation in the United Kingdom. You are a a pillar of stability. You engage in public functions. You receive foreign dignitaries. You engage in philanthropy, right? That's the job. It's It's a heavy weight to wear the crown. Queen Elizabeth has embodied this beautifully. You don't get to go out and do whatever you want all the time. Your life is scrutinized. You have to live a virtuous life. So many royals have failed at that. Queen Elizabeth has really done a very good job of showing that kind of vision of duty. And Prince Harry is is just giving it all up because me, me, me. And, And actually his wife deserves more blame here, Meghan Markle, because she chose this. I mean, she chose to marry a royal. She got this multi-million-dollar wedding at public expense in the United Kingdom. And then she broke up the British royal family and she dragged her husband away because she, she doesn't like it because she doesn't want to accept the responsibility of being a royal. She likes the perks. She likes the royal wedding. She likes all the fame and notoriety. Obviously she does. She was an actress. But she doesn't like the duty, the responsibility, the idea that you have to serve somebody else. And now your life is no longer just your own choices. I mean, I know a lot of actors and actresses, a lot of people in show business. They tend to be selfish people. That's just the way this industry works. You can't be selfish if you want to be a good royal. And it it just teaches you this lesson, one of the most important lessons for anyone writing into the mailbag, you know, which is never marry a feminist. Just don't do it. Don't marry a male feminist, don't marry a female feminist. It's a, it's a bad ideology, it's a bad ideology in part because it, it views politics primarily through the lens of rights and entitlement and me, 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 and I get whatever I want, regardless of, of certain biological facts and regardless of the sort of social facts that we see in the royal family. We have a role to play. Men have a role to play. Women have a role to play. The prince has a role to play. The princess has a role to play. And They're just turning. It's very sad. I mean, in some ways it's good because you're getting these giant radical leftists out of the royal family, but it's, it's a sad thing for Great Britain. Obviously, we Americans can look at this with a little bit more distance because they're not our royal family, but it's uh, sad nonetheless. It's sad for our politics and what it says about the West. Before we get to the mailbag, I have got to get to how lame Elizabeth Warren is. I just very quickly, Elizabeth Warren, you know, she does these painfully awkward social media experiments where she goes and she pretends to drink a beer. It's like the first time she's ever sipped beer. Then she awkwardly hugs her husband. Then she goes on with the queer eye for the straight guy character. And it's just so stiff and awkward. And She's trying to relate to people. She just outdid herself. L Magazine did an interview with Elizabeth Warren, where they want Liz Warren to give advice. And the whole premise is, Liz Warren's got a plan for everything. And so she's got a plan even for your questions to Elle magazine. Here's just a little clip. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Warren and I'm running for president of the United States. I'm here with Elle to solve your problems because if you haven't heard, I have a plan for that. Blah. Oh my gosh, how weak and lame and awkward. So uh, look, that's par for the course. That's how all these go. She gets asked these questions. A woman says, hey, this guy that I'm dating, he's not texting me back. What should I do? She says, dump the guy. You know, and she says, another person writes in and says, hey, I want to get a dog. My roommate doesn't want a dog. Who cares? Can you imagine if Trump did this? Be so pathetic. This is so pathetic. Elizabeth Warren is a Harvard professor. Be who you are. Just say who you are. You're trying to be president. You're not going to be a gal pal. You're not going to be this cool, relatable person. Just be who you are. Trump knows this. That's why he won. Same thing with Reagan. Anyway, they ask her all these questions and she gives these individual answers. But when she tweeted out the link, she brought them all together as though it were just one question and one answer. And I, I mention it because she's pretty much summed up leftism here. The tweet says, you deserve better. Dump the guy who ghosted you, convince the roommate to let you adopt a dog and I'll take care of you. By canceling your student loan debt. That's it. That's leftism. Dump your boyfriend, don't get married, stay alone forever, get a dog, that's fine, and just rely on me, the state. Me, 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 I'll give you money, I'm your best friend. Obama did this during the 2012 campaign. He had The Life of Julia, Cradle to Grave. It was an exploration of how. The government will take care of you and you don't need anybody else. At no point in the life of Julia does she fall in love or get married or start a family or get involved in her community. No, the only meaningful relationship she has is with the state. And that's what Elizabeth Warren wants you to have too. And that is not only lame and awkward and stiff and creepy, it's also politically disastrous. It would be disastrous for our politics, it would be disastrous for our spirits and our own humanity. That's Liz Warren. All right, we'll get to the mailbag so that I can give you the real answers that Liz Warren did not give you. You know, Liz Warren has a plan for that. I don't, but I'll just give you a straight answer. So come on back for the mailbag. Go to dailywire.com. You know what you get? Me, Ben, Drew, Matt, you get another kingdom. You get the Leftist Tears tumbler. most importantly, and you get to ask questions in the mailbag, which is coming up in just a second. All right. From Corey. Hey, Michael. How do I get over my fear of public speaking? I am the best man at my brother's wedding, and it's a lot of pressure to deliver a good speech. Has public speaking ever been an issue for you growing up or in your career? I obviously have spoken in public a lot. Your first consideration as a best man should not be how you're going to deliver this great oration. Don't worry about the public speaking first. You've got a mistake in here that if you fix this, it'll really help you. You said, I've got a lot of pressure on me to deliver a good speech. You're not going to deliver a speech. Do not deliver a speech. You are a best man. You are delivering a toast. A speech is the Gettysburg Address. A speech is Pericles' funeral oration. A toast is one minute long and it wishes the groom and the bride well, and then you sit down. I have seen so many bad best man speeches. I've seen worse maid of honor speeches, but I've seen most best man speeches I've seen have been terrible because they're speeches. Give a toast. A speech is from you. It's full. It's big. It's long. It's giant. A toast is, hey, all the best to these wonderful people. When you write your toast, keep it short at the most two to three minutes. If it's closer to one to two minutes, it will be better. Write it all out. That's fine. And then once you write it all out, go through and take out 80% of the first person personal pronouns. I, me, my, get out most of them. This is not about you. Here's the bad version of a best man toast. Hey, all right. Hey, buddy. So you remember, look, I've known Johnny for about 10 years now. And the one thing I noticed about Johnny, the thing that Johnny really meant to me is we would go out drinking a lot in college, make a lot of mistakes. You remember all those girls you dragged home? I, I actually didn't even think you'd settle for a good girl, you know, but you did. You did. You know, I love you, Jenny. Anyway, uh, look, you, you're great. And you just mean so much to me and I want the best for you. And I, th- I think we're still going to have fun. So, uh, anyway, happy wedding. Now the, the, that's the kind of typical best man speech. The typical maid of honor speech is even worse because it's, it's like, I, I don't I, the, the typical maid of honor speech is something like this. Hey, Jenny, you remember when the Phi Beta Sigma girls would go out? Yeah, well, look, John, when you marry one Phi Beta Sigma girl, you marry all the Phi Beta Sigma girls. Anyway, you're, so, you're my best friend. I love you so much. I really think this is so great, and I really loved when we hung out, and I really loved being here, and I, me, me, my, I, me, me, my, and it becomes a George Harrison song. Don't do that. Very simple. Why were you chosen to be the best man? because this couple loves you, you have a wonderful relationship with them. There is some real intimacy there. So you have some insight into them. Make the toast about them. Do not get digs in. We all, we all, because we feel awkward in these toasts, we want to kind of rib them and jazz them because that's the way that especially men relate to one another. Don't do it. Don't, don't. It just always looks lame and petty and people on their wedding day want nice things, they want beauty, they want love around them, they want gratitude. Just do that. If you keep it simple, if you make it about the couple, if you make it a genuine toast, if you make it a genuine honor of the couple, and if you get yourself mostly out of it, you will give a a best man toast better than 99.9% of them. From Nicholas, Dear renowned and austere religious podcaster, Dr. Kofefe. thank you for using my title. And Slayer of Libs, Michael Knowles. Thank you for using my other title. I have an issue. In the last year, I've fallen madly in love with a fantastic young woman. The issue with that is that dating and marriage isn't in her life plan of joining the Navy and working for the CIA and or some such things that are over my head. My grand plan is trucking. She is one of my best friends and I don't want to ruin that friendship by telling her how I feel should I remain content in having an amazing friend or go for broke and lay it on the table. you don't have a friend at the moment. I mean, I, yes, you, you hang out and you spend time together. What you really have is a love interest. She might have a friend, but you have a love interest. So get that out of your head of, well, maybe we'll just remain platonic friends and that's fine. No, you're both single people. You obviously, you say you're falling madly in love with her. So that's not no longer a possibility. You've only got one life, guys. So go get the girl. Now if you have completely different visions of your lives, one of you is going to have to change that vision. So if you were to get married and she's going to go join the Navy, then you're going to have to be able to move around with her and you'll be a sort of military husband. If you're going to get married, you want to be a trucker and you're just dead set on being a trucker and that's not going to work if she's moving around all the time, then she's going to have to give up what she wants. There's going to have to be some kind of some kind of give here. But if she's really the love of your life, as you seem to think that she is, then try to win her over. Now, when you try to win her over, don't be weird and sappy about it, okay? This is a mistake that especially young guys make all the time. Because really, when they're pursuing a woman, they're making it all about them, themselves. Don't make it about themselves. Make it about the woman. Be crafty here. You've got to be innocent as a dove and wise as a serpent. So instead of going out and saying, oh, "Oh, Jenny, I just love you so much, and I, I'm sorry I have to spill my my guts here. I just please, you're all I think about, you're all I dream about." No, don't. Uh, any woman is going to say like, "Ah, gross, get, get out of here." But you could say, "Hey, let's uh, let's go get a drink this weekend." You know, uh, when you go get a drink, you say, "Hey, it's a lovely dress you're wearing." Oh, oh, thanks, thanks, Johnny. Yeah, no problem, Jenny. Yeah, it's really. Oh, look at that. Mm. Well, anyway, okay. Uh, We'll have another round, please. Okay, so what are you thinking about this summer? What are you thinking about your career? What are you thinking about this? Engage with her. Get her thoughts on what she's interested in and then make it clear slowly and deliberately and confidently that you like her. Present yourself as a man that she would fall in love with too. And all that requires is a little bit of confidence, a little bit of directness, and a little seriousness. Serious in purpose and light and funny in conversation. Now, I have seen very ugly guys, guys with no prospects, guys who aren't that smart. I mean, guys that you would say on paper, not the best catch, end up with very beautiful women, very great women. Confidence is the key. All right, Seriously, that a confidence and seriousness, taking her seriously and having a little levity and a little humor in the conversation. Go for it. Go. Kiss the girl. Come on. From Golda. Dear Mr. Knowles, can men and women just be friends without developing romantic feelings toward the other? Thank you for all that you do. Yes, of course they can. I got plenty of female friends and I hope that my female friends have a male friend in me and other people. However, there are parameters here. There are some limitations. So two married people, a married man and a married woman, can be friends with one another, right? There's no prospect And you have to not be willing to cheat on your spouse. So there's no prospect of any romantic involvement. Those kind of people can be friends. Or a man can be friends with a woman that he doesn't find attractive, or vice versa. A woman can be friends with a man that she doesn't find attractive. Though that can get dicey, because if you're both single, then there might be some unrequited feelings here or there. It can happen. It is not the rule, because men and women are made to be attracted to one another, but it, it certainly can happen and you know some of my great friends of my life are, are women and uh, so you should embrace that when you can but be careful because you don't want to find yourself in a bad situation where there's unrequited love or you're cheating on your spouse or something like that. From Blake, dear master of Daily Wire's intrigue and force, I was wondering, if there were any ways we could convince the left to support our efforts to sanction Iran. Do you know of any laws in Iran that limit the rights of LGBTQ citizens? Maybe Iran has some strict gendered bathroom rules or something that they've concealed from the left. Surely if we can only uncover laws like that, we could find some common ground. Thanks. No, it doesn't matter. They know that. They know that they push gays off of roofs in Iran and and throughout the Muslim world. They, They know that it's not that they love Iran. It's not that they love these sort of countries and cultures that fundamentally disagree with their own ideology. It's that they hate the West. It's that leftism or progressivism is essentially an attack on Western tradition. It's progressivism, right? They're trying to run away from the tradition that, that we currently have. So anybody who opposes that Western tradition, they are going to cozy up to. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, and there's no Iranian law you're going to find that uh, is going to change that. From Nick, dear austere religious podcaster, aka the Michael Knowles, who would win in a fight between you, Ben Shapiro, Andrew Clavin, Matt Walsh, and the God King? The rules would be the only weapons allowed would be tumblers and the published books of whoever wields them. Also, mandatory ad breaks every five minutes for Zip Recruiter. Who would win? Ah, That last part is what throws me off because if it were just the published books of whoever wields them, then obviously I would win because I believe my best-selling blank magnum opus, Reasons to Vote for Democrats, a comprehensive guide, has outsold all of those guys with their books with words. So I would win in that case. However, once you add in the zip recruiter ads, then it just becomes a fight between Ben and Jeremy because Ben and Jeremy can wield the zip recruiter to Uh, fire me and hire somebody else to take my show. So that's the the trick there. And then Ben and Jeremy would have to duke it out. And I don't want to get into predicting who wins that. All right. One more question. From Michael, because I like that name. Dear Michael of the Camp Knowles, the most revered and austere religious podcaster. (laughs) There is a lot of debate about whether our country is a democratic one or a republic. As far as I can tell, the only difference is representation and a charter at its core. Can you please explain what the difference is between the democratic country and a republic? Thanks in advance. Yes. It is in many ways a question of degree. A direct democracy is where every citizen is participating directly in the lawmaking process. An indirect democracy veering toward what we would call a republic is when we elect representatives to make our laws for us and to govern ourselves for us. The trouble that has happened in our country is that our founders set up a republic, but over time, it has become much closer to a democracy. This is the natural inclination of representative governments. This is the natural inclination of rule by the people. Our founders knew this and our founders feared this. And we've made democracy into a byword for good or or wonderful or the way things should be. And so anytime something that's more democratic, we all cheer it on. But there are perils of democracy. You know, in a democracy, you don't have constitutional protections. In a pure democracy, it's just the will of the majority. That's all that matters. And it runs roughshod over the rights of minorities and certainly over the rights of the smallest minority of all, which is the individual. We have become more democratic over time. It's in the nature of these representative governments. It probably means that all things must die, even including this wonderful experiment in government that we have. But we can try to protect it today by preserving that, that republic, by uh, by keeping what Benjamin Franklin is reported to have said at the Constitutional Convention, a republic if you can keep it, right, by preserving those institutions. And that means thinking a little more seriously about our politics then. Woo, democracy now, everybody gets exactly the same thing all the time. Woo, like pretty much Liz Warren dancing around to, to music and to empty slogans such as that. It's on us, we have to do our best to educate our fellow citizens, and we got to preserve it at the ballot box. That's our show. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. See you on Monday. If you enjoyed this episode, and frankly, even if you didn't, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Andrew Klavan Show, and The Matt Walsh Show. The Michael Knowles Show is produced by Ben Davies. Director, Mike Joyner. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Supervising producers, Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling. Technical producer, Austin Stevens. Assistant Director, Pavel Wadowski. Editor and Associate Producer, Danny D'Amico. Audio Mixer, Robin Fenderson. Hair and Makeup, Jesua Olvera. Production Assistants, McKenna Waters and Ryan Love. The Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2020. On The Matt Walsh Show, we're not just discussing politics. We're talking culture, faith, family, all of the things that are really important to you. So come join the conversation.